episode 214, Zach Waddell, customer success manager at Wolf and former contestant on The Bachelorette. In the entrepreneurial space, learning that the idea really means nothing. It's all about the execution. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For links and more information, look in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 214. Hi, I'm Mark Raven and welcome to the most dramatic episode ever on My Favorite Mistake. My guest today is Zach Waddell. He is a customer success manager at Wolf. They are the first global collegiate higher education institution that allows membership for qualified new colleges through their software platform. So we'll talk a little bit about that business and other entrepreneurial ventures um, from Zach's career. But the other thing I'll mention is um, you may, if you, you may know from the way I introduced this episode, like um, first off, episode 97, Anthony Trucks, who was my guest, he had previously been a contestant on American Ninja Warrior. Zach Waddell joining us today was a contestant on a show that might be even more grueling. <laughs> that show, that show is The Bachelorette. So Zach, sorry for the tortured introduction there. How are you? Oh, hey, not a torch at all. That was that was fun. Well done. Bravo. <laughs> um, my wife is a huge fan of the show, so I've picked up some of the lingo and, and some of that along the way. Yeah, you know, a lot of it feels like climbing a warped wall, just like Ninja Warriors. So, uh, yeah, good analogy. I hope you, you didn't come away with too many bruises. No. Um, yeah, it was, you know, it's an interesting experience kind of being thrown to the fire and seeing how you come out forged or unforged. Um, it's a good exercise in kind of creating your own narrative and controlling your own narrative throughout the show. So, you know, I came out okay. Others didn't, but I enjoyed it. All right. Well, we'll we'll, we'll come back to that later on, because I, I think in terms of the, the question we normally start with, I think your story is is something not related to that. Um, thinking about, you know, rocky ups and downs and, and challenges and, and entrepreneurship. So, you know, as uh, let me get back to the question at hand, Zach, you know, the different things you've done, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Yeah, it's funny. So a little bit of security, securitist way to answer this. But, you know, when I thought back on the favorite mistake, I thought about a story my grandfather used to tell me. Um he talks about his father coming from Croatia to the new world and three brothers. And anyway, two of the brothers, including my great grandfather got on the boat to Ellis Island, but the other brothers somehow didn't make the trip. Um, you know, years later, they, they hear from him by whatever method they do, but he had ended up on the wrong boat and ended up in Chile carrying the rootstock from their family vineyard in Croatia. Um, to my from my grandfather's point of view, this was always a story of foreboding, like, you know, be on time, be responsible. But, you know, we find out years later that there's uh, this this other lost pro, uh, Chilean individual. He started a successful vineyard. And to this day, you know, it's a it's one of the higher end boutique vineyards in, in Chile. 
Um, so for me, it flipped this on its head. You know, someone that uh, either by mistake or by design got on the wrong ship and ended up having a really um, great, mis- you know, uh, the mistake turned into a really great opportunity. Um, and that happens sometimes. We can be thankful for that when it does. <laughs> Uh, but for me, I mean, you know, coming back to my story, I was uh, I, I had a, a kind of a long transition, falling in love with ideas and in the entrepreneurial space, learning that the idea really means nothing. It's all about the execution and the way in which you execute is, you know, that's that um, that true iterative approach going out, listening to the customers and even though that was kind of built in the game plan for me, surrounding yourself with other founders that think the same way is so important. And, uh, you know, that was my kind of big mistake. So you're, you're saying like, so maybe first off, like if you can give the example of the story you're thinking of here, what what, what the idea was, what the company was, you know, because, uh, you know, unpack that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think... At the time, you know, I, I come from an entrepreneurial background. My father was an entrepreneur, um, various degrees of successes and failures, as, as most entrepreneurs have. Um, but I was in a position working for a large Fortune 500, eh, Fortune uh, 2000 company that was going under and the ship was sinking. And, you know, like a lot of us were coming up with ideas of what's next. The markets weren't great. The job opportunities weren't great. And I was, I had some ideas I've been working on for a while uh, to start something new. Now, the people I were voicing these ideas to were people I worked with as an organization. They were all failing, you know, failing with the ship, falling with the ship. And they said, let's do this. Um, So my first, you know, unpacking that big mistake was not really vetting those individuals. It was mostly out of necessity that we came together and we didn't really have time to take a breath and to say, is this the right group? Mm. Yeah. What I mean, say, um, were they the right individuals because they had certain functional or technical skills? Or are, are you kind yeah. of so about betting in terms of like shared values or approach to entrepreneurship? I think that's it. Um, you know, when you're the one that's been mulling over these ideas and building them for um, for months and even years in this case. Um, all that you've put into it comes across as, hey, this sounds exciting, but the ideas that were the backbone of it, uh, for me, it were things like distributed leadership, um, you know, new ways of approaching management in a way that wasn't as hierarchical. Um, that was a big part of it. And, you know, I had put together hundreds, not hundreds, but uh, large governance docs that you know nobody really took the time to read mm-hmm. or understand. Yeah. And that was also my fault in the execution of not like, hey, foregrounding this, let's all read this together and make sure we understand it. Right. Sure. Sure. Tell, you know, tell, tell us about the idea and the company and, and how that got started. Maybe we can come back and talk more about like the culture and the people side. Is that OK? Sure. Yeah. yeah so the, the company itself um, was was in flat fee real estate. So there were. Very few companies at the time, and they were mostly very regionally located. Um, my idea was to, you know, start a flat fee commission real estate company that was based on your social network, people that um, you potentially know or, or trust 
to do the real estate transaction for a set flat fee. Um, you know, we all know that cousins and aunts and uncles, a lot of them have a real estate license or just aren't using it. And if you can find someone to, you know, do the transaction for three, four thousand dollars, everybody comes out ahead. Yeah. yeah. And and so that's certainly appealing compared to paying six percent which is pretty standard. You know, it's interesting how uh, industries have these sort of just, you know, standard fees. And I mean, it sounds, is was it, was it appealing to both sides of the transaction? Like what what assumptions did you, let me ask it this way. What assumptions did you have to test to see if, if that would fly? Yeah, good question. Um, You know, of, of course you can, it appeals to anyone, right? The the disparity between the six percent and the flat fee not only is um, um, easy, a lot easier to pallet, but also when it, when it comes down to the brass tax of it all, um, you know, it's it's difficult. What I wasn't really um, factoring in was the difficulty of moving realtors that are full time realtors away. From that model, no matter if there's a personal relationship involved or not. Um, And I realized pretty quickly that the way to test this was to go out and become a realtor myself, go out and start using my own network to to test, Um, you know, um, the the disparity that was with the other founders was not everybody wanted to go out and, and do that, you know, and that's where it started to break apart. Yeah. And so then how... What kind of cycles of learning were there then for at least for you going out and putting that license to use, trying to test this model? Yeah, um, it, you know, it was again, it was easy to tell a story um, and it was easy people to buy in and understand the idea. But it was a lot more difficult breaking from um, the, the, the patterns of behavior within the real estate market. Also within the, the regulatory framework, I mean, there's some states that didn't even allow this to happen. Um, so that was a big barrier that I had kind of scratched the surface on in my research, but not fully dived into it. And that's when it yeah, became apparent how difficult it was going to be to break the tradition. Yeah. So then, you know, I'm curious when you when you start seeing barriers like this, some of them very entrenched, very systemic. Was there a thought process of trying to find a way to pivot or pulling the plug and saying, well, we tried, we learned some things, there's no shame in that, life goes on? Like, how how do you weigh some of that decision then? Yeah, really good question. For me, um, having kind of fallen in love with the idea of what I wanted the business to be, it was something that I, I, I found meaning in doing or bust. Um, so the pivot idea, which is where it turned, was something that I wasn't as interested in being a part of. Um, and that's when I kind of made the departure. I, the company, to, to my knowledge, is still around. Okay. I think they're doing some sort of like reverse mortgage type of thing, which is, you know, not the direction I, I originally wanted it to go. But yeah, those pivots are essential if you if you're in it for the long run. Um, for me, it was more uh, motivated for for mission. Yeah, and that's where I departed. Yeah. So then, um, I'd like to come back. Then you talk about some of the um, the people dynamic of of Did you have a team that was aligned with your view of of how you wanted the company 
um, to be to be managed. Um, so for one, if you could just kind of talk a little bit more about your thoughts and inspiration around um, being less hierarchical, like where what influences you had on that and what you would have wanted to see in the company had it kind of gone the way you would have hoped. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can think back at the time I was reading a lot of um, the Zappos stuff, the uh, Inspiral group out of New Zealand. You know, I was I was uh, deep into that and saw the path towards a better way, but, you know, only in, in, in the way the stories were being told, not in the execution of it. Um, I tried to put together, like I said, my own sort of governance stocks that were um, informed by what I was reading, but I, yeah, I never really um, had those powwows with others, members of the leadership team to say, Hey, let's, let's make this work. Um, let's understand it together. Let's, let's riff on it a little bit. It was just like, Hey, this is sitting in my folder in my Google drive somewhere. Uh, and I'm silently trying to um, manage by it. Yeah. But I mean, is it fair to say, like of all the things a startup is trying to do or figure out how do we prioritize? Are we finding product market fit? Are we having to adjust? What are we, what experiments are we doing? Do we, are we developing whatever platform you were maybe developing? I mean, I, I, I could see where like the, like stopping to talk about culture might sometimes feel like a luxury. Yeah. Or not, not, a, not top priority for the others. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, to be fair, it, it probably wasn't at the time. Um, and, you know, when I, when I talk about the mistake, I think that was one of my big mistakes is like trying to push that agenda too early. Um, and at the end of the day, when I think back, I mean, was I in love with like starting a company or just starting a company that looked like this? And I think that was it. You know, it was this this vision of like what coming out of a, a large corporate hierarchical structure. Hey, here's an alternative. And I want to make an alternative come to life. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, in some of my own career path, I mean, I've, you know, kind of vacillated or swung back and forth like a pendulum. Uh, it's possible. To, I mean, I've made mistakes of sort of over adjusting sometimes of like leaving big corporate life to go to a startup and then tiring of the problems that came from that. And I probably made a mistake in like swinging back to corporate life again. <laughs> a mistake I will probably not repeat again. And I'm I'm sure I'm unhirable um, at this point. But um, I mean, maybe we can transition to talking about, Zach, what you've seen in terms of lessons learned, um, of, you know, future ventures or even uh, being applied to what you're doing through Wolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it was an eye-opening experience um for me to understand the need for good mentorship and leadership and being around someone that was a lot smarter than I was, that was a lot more grounded than I was, um, that um, yeah, you know, that was about execution and could execute in ways I couldn't before. And yeah, it's just been so great to kind of take a back seat to these dreams of becoming a lead and just saying, I'm, I'm happy being second fiddle to people that are way smarter than me. And then I can fit in a place, do my job well, but still be a part of a, an entrepreneurial venture that's actually going somewhere. Yeah. So when, what stage was Wolf at when you joined, would you say they had already found product market fit in this definition of 
um, their platform for different colleges and universities? Yeah, it was on the second or third iteration of product market fit. Um, not to the way we've seen success recently, but you know, I was probably um, in the yeah what first uh, ten employees that they started started slowly grow to where we're you know fifty or sixty now. Um, but yeah, at, at that point, it was coming off of an early stage like building a license or a, a portfolio of um, accreditation licenses globally. And as that portfolio started to build, it was about finding the right customers, colleges that wanted to start using those licenses. Um, when I started, there were less than, you know, let's see, probably a, a less than 10 colleges and we're at um, yeah, close to 30 now. Uh, and these these colleges that we have now are uh, substantially larger than when I started off. So it's been a good ride. Yeah. And then are there opportunities in, in your role as a customer success manager to, you know, at least practice in different ways? Um, you know, these principles around um, iteration and, 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 and learning and, and I don't, you know, some people would say failing forward. It's not my favorite phrase. I don't know why it came to mind, but. Like how, how how do you are there ways to apply it now in the in the type of role that you're in? Yeah, I mean because um, because this field of accreditation management and accredited learning outside the scope of a traditional university setting, brick and mortar, I should say, is so new. I think we're all willing to make those small mistakes, fail quickly, um, learn collaboratively, and throw egos out the window in a way that doesn't exist. Um, in you know the traditional pathways, um, and it, that that part's really great. You know when you when you sit with a new college founder that um, has had a lot of success, maybe at at a university, is branching off on their own, starting a college, um, provides extremely high quality education, but needs to find a, a venue to do that. And this this new college setting is just really exciting. So. Yeah, I mean, finding finding where the students are um, is uh, is a process that you know changes every day. So, yeah, well, it, I'm you know not knowing the market that you're serving and working with. Um, it's a little surprising to hear of um, new colleges and, and colleges being started. It seems like you hear more often of, of struggles of older, smaller schools. Um, I'm, I'm just kind of curious what um, what your perspectives are in terms of you know. Um, well, I mean, startups, I guess, in a way, a startup college and the challenges they're facing. And I, the, the the question I was going to ask them was just a little bit about Wolf. How if somebody's starting a college and what 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 services uh, are they getting from Wolf that they might not have to build independently? Yeah. So as an example, I mean, you can think of a um, a large boot camp maybe in India that has thousands of students signing on every single month that are providing kind of cutting edge education in ways that traditional universities aren't in coding, but specifically in coding in areas that are employable, right? You know, all of the latest coding uh, coding languages are taught to in kind of real time as they're emerging um, with high quality instructors that are coming out of some of the top Indian universities. You know, this isn't some, if, if they're going to go the traditional path of getting this accredited learning inside a university, the licensing process will take years, um, but because we're able to move, you know, so swiftly and nimbly outside of that environment, 
Um, yeah, I mean, we can we can spin up these these new colleges with these same high quality professors, add some elements of like peer reviewed literature and all that's required in a, in a real academic setting, and you know come out with the same ECTS accredited um, degrees that students are getting coming out of Oxford or University of London. I mean, the same qualifications. Uh, but just do it. You know, the accreditation part is just much faster and much much mm-hmm. more. So it's not even okay. That's interesting. It's not a matter of just outsourcing certain functions. It's really more of a time to market. Time to market, and yeah, I mean, you know, these these colleges could go down the route. I I assume or I know of doing filing for their own accreditation, right? But again, that process takes many years on their own. And it requires a, you know, a, a, an individual, a number of individual, a whole team and department, right, at a high headcount. Um, in our circuit, we, we essentially take over that responsibility and say, hey, here's our licenses and our portfolio. Use what you can teach to and, uh, and then grow your business as you see fit without worrying about the accreditation piece. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So you talked earlier about, you know, falling in love with an idea. Well, yeah. let's, let's, let's talk the bachelorette. Now I was going to share just to preface, um, you know, Zach and I first, when, when did we first meet like seven years ago? Yeah, that sounds right. Yep. Right. So um, we share some professional, you know, kind of certification and interests around continuous improvement uh, methodologies. And, you know, there in the DFW area, there was this opportunity to, to meet networking, compare notes. And, you know, we're sitting there having breakfast, I think it was, and kind of sharing, you know, in my background and Zach's going through his career and so then casually throws out like, oh, then, then I was on The Bachelorette and then like, you know, <laughs> just kind of slipped that in there, which I said, you know, I, 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 I know I get a sense of the show, but I didn't recognize you from the show. When I came home and mentioned you to my wife and to her mother, they were like, oh, Zach, we love Zach. So that was my introduction to you back then, at least. You know, it's funny, it, the the audience of that show, you never you never know who, who's watching. And I remember at the height of viewership when I was coming off. The, I mean, I was still working in oil and gas and I would be down in South Texas and a small town at a gas station. And, you know, guy coming in in boots and a cowboy hat. Hey, aren't you that that guy from The Bachelor? And like, well, you know, it's uh, it's crazy the reach that show has. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will admit to being drawn, I think, especially pandemic times, I got drawn into a couple of um, seasons where I was watching probably as actively um, as as Amy, but she she's still with it and watching the new seasons. But I'm, I'm curious to hear, like, you know, the the decision process of, of, you know, applying to be on a show like this and wondering, is this a good idea? Is this a mistake? Or did you think, no, you know, I mean, how we're. How much did you try to evaluate that, or did you kind of just dive into it? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it's a very similar situation to starting the startup, and the fact that the 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 alignment was right, right. And in the case of the startup, you know, the company I was working for was was failing. We all knew we were going to be cut. And this time, you know, I was living in San Antonio, working in oil and gas. I was having a really hard time meeting people. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a lot to lose. I, uh, my sister would say, hey, you, you should try out for the show. I tried out, didn't think much about it. But when I got on, I mean, the risk was you're gone for a couple months. You travel the world. You get to hang out with other cool guys on the show, some not so cool. Uh, 
And, you know, what do you have to lose? You you may meet someone exceptional, um, but what you have to lose is the possibility. At the time, I was a, a consultant in oil and gas. So I was able to kind of move from a project and then come back hoping to find another. Yeah. Um, so I didn't have a lot to risk at the time. And then as my wife had pointed out, um, as she knew, oh, Zach's sister, Carly. Now, she had been a contestant on one of the women on a, a season of The Bachelor before you, right? So actually after. So after, after, sorry. During, yeah, no, it's okay. During my show, she had uh, the, the the film crew had come to meet my family because the, the Bachelorette was coming to my house. And they met my sister and they said, oh, you should come on the show. You'd be really great. Um, but the Bachelor for her season was going to be somebody from mine. Right. Usually it's somebody within that pool. And we already had a good idea of who it was going to be. And it was somebody that she wasn't too fond of. So she actually delayed um, her being a contestant on the show for another year and, you know, roll the dice. And it, it worked out. But she ended up being on two additional spinoffs of the show yeah. uh, and got married from it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, um, and and my uh, my wife's going to cringe when she hears me make the mistake of who was on first. So my mistake. So it goes. But um she was able to, was she able to benefit from your experience at all? Or did she do her thing her way? Well, the funny thing in terms of benefiting from the show that didn't exist when I was on was the prevalence of um, social media and influencer culture. It was just starting to kind of take root. Um, but by the time my sister was on it two years later, the people that made it, uh, you know, in the top five or so from the show and got a good um, audience base could essentially make a living from, as we know, what influence are, influencers are now. Uh, and she really continues to do that even to this day. Mm -hmm. and, and what year was it that you were on? Uh, let's see, 10, 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that was not one of the very first seasons. I mean, it had already been established and been around for a while. That's right. At that point. I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious for you or if you had a sense from others, like, you know, how, how much do you go and study previous seasons and try to figure out what to do? Or is, is that some, maybe a waste of time yeah. to just come be yourself and do your own thing? Yeah. It's for me, I, I knew I would lose motivation if I watched the whole season. <laughs> Yes. So I purposely didn't <laughs> uh, and went on having everything be fresh and new. Yeah. Did, did you get sense from the other guys who were you were competing with on that season? I mean, I imagine some of them, I'm sure there's different approaches. Some probably broke it down like game film and seriously studied it. And some were like, hey, what's wait? Oh, this, there's cameras. What? Yeah. 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 I think those who studied, it was detrimental. I mean, you, you tried to like employ certain strategies that you'd seen four seasons ago. And others had kind of picked up on those strategies being reemployed. And it just, and the, the show would essentially foreground anything that was similar, right? And they would spotlight it in a way that you knew it was going to cause drama. Um, my whole strategy was essentially just sit back and let, and don't get involved in any of the drama. And that worked out well. So you were trying to head off that you predicted that would have been a mistake. Predicted it would have been a mistake. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, it's such a, it's such a, a fascinating dynamic to try to think like what it's one thing to watch the show. Then it's another thing to step back and try to put yourself in the shoes 
you know, of somebody who was 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 going through that. Now, now, first off, though, I mean, I think there's a general business or career lesson there of kind of like don't try too hard to copy what some other company did. At some point, you've got to be yourself and do your own thing. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about the experience was like there's a person that's put up on a pedestal that you don't know a lot about and you have the hope at least that there's somebody exceptional because they were put on that platform. And then it's all about finding out if they are. And you get very limited data, right? One week you spend five or 10 minutes. As the show goes on, you get to spend a little more time, but it's never more than a couple hours in a week. And that's really all the data you have to go for. Wow. wow. Yeah. Um, your hope is that you get to the end and now you have exclusive time to figure it out. Right. But in order to get that exclusive time, you have to really wait it out. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, yeah. Everyone's sort of taking a flyer um, of what path is going to happen. I'm sure there, there's there's different um things that happen where somebody you know one of the one one of the other guys right away what was the 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 bachelorette's name for your season uh, Desiree Desiree um that some some guys might come in and whatever and just right away think okay well no there's something about Desiree just not 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 attractive to me it doesn't seem like a fit they might think that right away and then they're okay well maybe they're just destined to have a short short stint they get sent home in the first group and you know maybe that's for the best and then there's probably others who at the other extreme at the other side of the spectrum are like oh she's amazing and you have attraction feelings and you're trying to pursue that and then you know there, there might be that there's that middle ground where it seems like there's people on each season who just want to be on tv yeah and there's this question or this conflict of they they might not be into her but they want to stay around. That's that's kind of an in, that what how I mean what what are your thoughts on just that dynamic and as from what you experienced or as you see perhaps other seasons of this? Yeah, yeah, a couple of things. I mean, one it's even more prevalent now because people can monetize their time on TV. So that adds a whole nother layer. But in in my time it wasn't as prevalent. But you have those people that really maybe are between jobs, maybe don't have a lot going for them in a career. And this is just like time to hang out. It's it's not even about being on TV. It's just like, sure. oh, I have nothing else to do. Right. <laughs> um, and that, you know, adds a complexity to it because those individuals, uh, from my experience, tended to kind of cause drama. And yeah. 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 Well, and it seems like, I mean, I've, uh, the different types of mistakes you, you you mentioned people trying to you know follow someone else's game plan um you know it's here here I'm gonna ask you this because I've, I've seen enough of the show to know like this never seems to pan out well like you can see a mistake coming where let's say I'll frame it in terms of a bachelorette season where one of the guys is really behaving badly being rude to everybody else even being disparaging towards a bachelorette this is bad. But then one of the other contestants decides, well, I need to go tell the bachelorette what's going on. And that just always seems to backfire. Exactly. And, you know, even let, let's say, you know, person A has gone and, 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 and told the bachelorette, right? 
you have a conversation with her in two hours and you don't really want to bring it up either. You know, she's heard it from everyone else. It's been the topic of conversation. She understands that part of the uh, allure of the show is this, this drama like sub thread uh, and that it has to happen. Um, but yeah, you feel you through sometimes the, uh, you know, the stimulation of the production crew, they'll throw in a question, right? Just to, and then all of a sudden you find yourself talking about it, even though you didn't want to. So there is that artificial aspect of it, right? That, that certainly, yeah. And even comes so more in the editing. Well, so I was I was going to ask about those two. The, there's maybe three pieces there of the artificial nature of who the producers are selecting. And you can always tell there, there's certain types of like, oh, there's the troublemaker. They know that person's a train wreck or there's there's that. And then there's what the producers might try to instigate and then the way that it's edited. Like, how, how do you think those three pieces um, contribute to this, quote unquote, reality television, maybe not being really that real? Yeah, no, that's that's certainly their magic, their, their magic formula. Right. And like you said, there's these certain archetypes that will always be built into the casting. There is this element of, um, yeah, asking, inter- interceding in situations to create the drama and even more so kind of wearing you down into saying something, right? Because every day you're called in for probably an hour long one-on-one interview with a producer, sometimes twice or three times a day. And their whole goal is to get snippets, little sound bites they can use, Um you know, I took the approach of like just not giving into it um, and just, yeah, glossing over, controlling my own narrative, essentially. Right. Um, others don't like they'll have too much to drink or they'll just um, be weak minded enough to just let everything spew out. And then the editing part is the element you really have no control over. Yeah. Um, you can be made to be a hero or a villain. So I guess to, do you I mean, going through that. I mean, at some point you say, well, I'm I'm going to do my best. I can only control how I act, how they're going to portray it. I guess you just that's part of the risk of coming on a show like that. That's right. Yeah. 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 You can only control so much. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if somebody came to you and said, hey, Zach, I'm thinking about going on this. I mean, do you have blanket advice of either run away or, hey, go if you want, go and do it. Like, I mean, what 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 advice might you give to someone who's because the show is still going on? They still want people to apply. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's completely a risk reward thing. I mean, if you have a lot going in your career um, with friend groups and all these things that you're you're happy and content with, then take the long path and trying to meet someone special. Uh, if, you know, you don't have a lot going on and maybe the. Um, there is this element that because you have some exposure that you do have a chance of meeting someone after the show, which is, is an element that I think a lot of people consider. Um, but I, to me, it completely comes down to career. If you've got something going for you, if you're going to take three months off, it, the job is probably not going to be the same when you come back. Uh, you're going to be pushed out in some capacity. So don't take that risk if you have something going for you. Yeah, because <laughs> what, what was what was the time frame again? If someone goes, gets sent home right away, that's that's how much time between arriving and departing, like real lifetime, not TV time. That's right, yeah. I mean, I think the shortest you can be gone is probably a week. If you get sent home on that very first rose ceremony night, 
you spent about three or four days in a hotel with the pre-production stuff. Um, then you'd probably have an, a day after of production and then you'd be sent home. But in the uh, most extreme example, you'd be gone three months. Okay. If you go final. That, that whole three months. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, um, you finished fourth place in that season. You made it pretty far um, to the end. You know, for, pe- for people to, who don't know you and your story, if you wouldn't mind sort of just walking through a little bit about how The Bachelor ended and then meeting your now wife that you have a family with. Yeah, good question. Um, it, it was interesting. I, you know, I was probably strung along with other contestants, but in terms of ending, um, I don't think you ever see it coming that when you get to those later stages that you're going to be kicked off. Um, and when I was, I was um, kind of shocked. I didn't think I would make it to the end, but I didn't think I, I thought at least I would get one step further. Um, you're looking at the, you're like, that guy made it? You know, it's one of those things. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to ask you which guy you're referring to. Maybe some <laughs> other time. That was the only shocking part. Um, yeah. In terms of your on-camera reaction, there is, I think, a sense of responsibility you feel at that point, no matter how you feel, to show it up a little more than maybe what's inside. Um, and I, I, I'm sure everybody feels this, but I, I think it part of it's the re, like out of duty and respect for the Bachelorette in some way. Like you, you don't want to, yeah, come across as. Oh, this okay, fine. I'm going home, right? And it's a little bit disrespectful for the real or simulated relationship that you've been a part of, right? Um, so there's that. Coming home, you're in this weird about two-month period between leaving the show and the show airing. And they scare you with all these clauses. Hey, you've signed here. If you talk about the results, you're going to get sued for whatever, $2 million or $3 million or something. Um, and, and, you know, so, and to make that even more complicated, at the time I was being told, hey, you're, you're um, the, the favorite to become the next Bachelor, right? I'm sure other people being told the same thing. So, you know, you better be good. You better sit by your phone because we may be calling you at any time. Um, luckily I had a, I had a, a good friend from the show that him and I spent a lot of time with, and he was being told the same thing. He ended up becoming a bachelor. Um, but I ended up meeting my, you know, my wife, Elizabeth, um, during that period where I was, you know, and when I met her, I was like, okay, like, even if I got the, the, the call, I don't know if I would take it. So it was, yeah, it was a a pretty easy decision when I met her. I mean, I was obviously really interested in meeting someone special and then meeting her. That was a no brainer. The timing was right. And we just, we jumped into it. Now, I mean, it's one thing for, for Desiree and um, who I'd say, sorry, I don't know the names. I should have done some research here. No, no, Chris. Yeah. Chatting about this, Chris, Desiree and Chris, it's one thing that they, if they're still together, they have to try to keep that under wraps or quiet or no, but like for you, I don't know. Was there any, like, did you think like, well, someone's going to see you out with Elizabeth and take pictures and say, okay, well, no, Zach didn't win. Yeah. Um, I, at that point I kind of didn't care. <laughs> okay. You know, sure. It was like, I, <laughs> I, I would be held responsible for the things I said, not as much being in a, in a picture with someone. 
So I, you know, it, I was fine, like having that happen. And then, you know, it's funny, all that being said, when everything was revealed, um, you know, we would go on couples trips with Desiree and Chris and my wife and, and I, uh, I think even before we were married. Um, and the interesting thing was like, the friendships were there between all of us, right? But you could tell the romantic connections weren't as much as we were making him out to be at the time. So it was interesting to see how that all kind of settles in that, that period. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's um, things work out for different people in different ways and different paths. And, uh, you know, so it's just, it's interesting to see. And, you know, and sadly, I don't know the exact percentages, but it seems like, especially in earlier seasons of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, the percentage of couples that actually went through with getting married was very low. Like Ryan and uh, Krista yep. from a season. And then it seems like there's been more of that recently. I don't know if that's something the producers, because they seem to really want to bank on, well, this isn't just a, a, a game show. People are getting engaged and married and having happy lives together. It seems like that's happening more. I don't know if that's by design or if there's other factors, I wonder. Yeah, I think it's by design and the fact that they will they will create this fairy tale Hollywood TV wedding for you if, you, yeah. Uh, so you get all that comes along with that. And that will be, you know, foregrounded for TV. Uh, and then the divorces that happen afterwards kind of fall by the wayside, right? Which are just as prevalent, yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess one other question I was going to ask just about some of those dynamics. You mentioned going on trips with other couples. Is there, are there, is, do you feel like there's sort of like a fraternity slash sorority of people who've been on the show? And I guess there's probably a very different, well, maybe it is very much like a fraternity and a sorority that guys yeah. like you who are contestants on the bachelorette season, um, in a way you have a lot in common with the women who are competing for the bachelor. It's, but but is is there sort of a community or um in yeah. a formal way or you just you've got some people that you've met and you're friends with yeah yeah absolutely especially for the time right after the show why why people are still single like they all benefit from kind of banding together um and being a part of that that community that fraternity publicly to attract right um for long-term relationships or short-term relationships but there's certainly that benefit to it. But I've noticed that as people like myself get married and settled into family life, um, those yeah, fraternities start to kind of break apart in a way that, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. Different stages of life. And, you know, you know sometimes, yeah, you don't get to keep in, in close uh, contact with your, your college buddies, whether it was fraternity or, or otherwise. So, right. yeah. Uh, well, um, you know, it's fascinating to to talk about you know these these different aspects of um, entrepreneurship and bachelorette. You know, it's kind of thinking of taking risks, heading off, you know, evaluating risk, heading off mistakes, bouncing back uh, from mistakes. There's a lot of you know, I mean, we're 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 drawing connections there. I don't like to put you on the spot. Like, if you were to write, if someone were to say, "Hey, Zach, we want you to write a business book about." entrepreneurship lessons from the bachelor or the bachelorette. Is there anything that comes to mind? we got to always brainstorm on a title later. I'm, I'm really putting <laughs> you on the spot, but any, anything that comes to mind there, if you, if someone were to say, Hey, we're going to dangle this book contract in front of you. What would you, what would you say? You know, I would say, I would say, don't read my book, write your own book 
in real time conversation with others. I think, you know, to me, more and more, I'm realizing that's where the real knowledge is. It's just being engaged in the, the process of knowledge creation in real time um, as the world is changing. Um, don't be afraid to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, but be in conversation and community with others where it's OK to fail. It's very well said. I think that's a great note to end on there, Zach. Well done. So thank you. Thank you for coming on and um, suffering through my semi-informed questions about the show. And, you know, thanks for sharing, you know, your favorite mistake story, more importantly, lessons learned and being open about that. I really appreciate it. Of course. Always great to talk to you. Enjoy this. Likewise. Thanks, Zach. Uh-huh. Well, thanks again to Zach Waddell for uh, a really unique and interesting discussion here. Uh, for more information about uh, Wolf and more, look in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 214. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.